I think some people, some fathers, when they become fathers, uh, think they know what they're doing. Um, I am happy to report that I was not that person. I, uh, I was very well aware going into it that uh, things were going to get weird and uh, confusing and perplexing and challenging. And it's an interesting uh, time for those of you who've uh, been a part of a family, a couple, as you're moving through towards the time of birth, there's this, this process of preparation um, as you see the changes for men, as you see the changes in your wife, um, as you see uh, <laughs> not just physical changes, but also sometimes uh, emotional changes and uh, changes in uh, demeanor, you, uh, you realize that something very important, very weighty is going on. And yet, no matter, no matter what you do, no matter how many books you read, I, 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 re- I read this book, um, and it was you know, kind of like the idiot's guide to parenting, and it was supposed to be really funny. Uh, it, tell, it tells you how to be a good dad. One of the things it talks about is when weird people want to touch your baby. Um, it's, uh, no, this is a real thing. Uh, when weird people want to touch your baby, it's not the wife or mother's job to protect the child. That's your job as a father. And so you need to just step in and intercede before the weird person gets to touch your child. Um, I read this, and I took it to heart. Uh, so Aaron and I were in Pasadena not long after uh, Alice was born, and a, um, uh, may- maybe he um, was in between living situations at the time and had a very large beard, and uh, he thought it would be a really great idea to, to take a picture of my baby. And so he jumped in, and he said, hey, can I take a picture of your, of your child? And I could tell Aaron was freaked out. And so I was like, oh, no, man, that's cool. We're good. Thanks. And I just walked away because I knew what to do. I had, been, I had prepared. I had read up on the subject. Nevertheless, fathers, you have no idea how you're going to be required to bend and stretch and change without breaking. People tell you that having a child uh, get, comes with it some of the highest highs and some of the lowest lows, and you have no idea how those things come about until you actually have a child and you actually live through and experience that. And so when you're sitting there for the first time and you're holding the baby in the hospital, it's very perplexing. I'll be honest, there, there is joy, there is excitement, there's fear. And it's overall a very confusing, very strange, very upsetting, and not normal experience. And for people like me who like things the same all the time, it's a little bit difficult. We're we're nearing the end of the Gospel of Luke. And for fathers and mothers, and anyone really who's gone through a massive change in life, you will resonate with this story because you too have been in a time in your life where you are greatly perplexed where the world is changing you're walking into a new age a new dispensation a new time of life and it's confusing you find yourself living in reser perplexion today the tomb is empty and yet Instead of joy, there's confusion. 
If you have your note sheets, please stand and let's read the text together. This is Luke 24, 1 to 12. Let us hear what it is like to live in reser perplexion. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them, we'll see who they are in a moment, came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared because Jesus presumably is a corpse inside it. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the, work, to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee? Saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And the women remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and other women were were with them who told these things to the, the apostles. And the women's words seemed to the apostles like nonsense and they didn't believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths, the grave cloths, lying by by themselves. And he departed, utterly, utterly bewildered by what had happened. You may be seated. No, 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 no! The tomb is empty. The baby has been born, for those of you fathers. It's supposed to be a time of the utmost joy, excitement. A new life is, supposed, is now taking place. You're entering into a new age. Where's the happiness, Luke? When you're telling this story, where is the excitement and the joy, the joy that we feel on Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday, when we celebrate the risen Lord? Where is it? Instead, we see that things are getting confused. The women, they're greatly perplexed. And you can imagine this. So they, they go, and they're expecting to see a dead body. And so they go to the, the, the tomb. And actually, you know, the, the tomb would have been like, we were told that it was um, carved out of a, uh, of, a, of a rock. So it was like people had taken chisels and, and, and got this big, great uh, opening. And then they would have dug sort of a rut and had like a cylindrical... Um, or circular uh, stone that would be able to be rolled across this this rut. It would have been heavy, but doable um, from the outside, because, you know, from the inside, you wouldn't have to worry about it, right? Uh, so anyway, they, they, they go to the tomb, and they're expecting to, to, to find a dead body. They, they brought spices. Um, this is to keep the, the corpse from uh, smelling too badly. And uh, this is sort of a, a sign of, of respect, because you know, not a lot of people are going to be spending time inside a tomb with a dead body, but it's to show honor to one who's, who, who you've loved, who, who's been lost. And what they're expecting to do is uh, apply these spices, and then they're going to roll the stone, uh, they're going to roll the stone away, apply the spices, roll the stone back, and then they're going to wait a year, and then they're going to come back, and they're going to roll it open again, and uh, at this point, there'll just be bones left. And so you'll take the bones of the deceased and you'll put them in an ossuary. And so this way you can use a tomb to, to carry uh, the remains of, of many people in your family. And so the women, when they get there, they're greatly perplexed. First, because they assume that somebody got there first to apply the spices. And they're thinking, who would have done that? This is our job and we were the closest to the Lord. So probably they're a little bit angry, a little bit upset. Uh, we're the ones who are supposed to show honor to the king. 
And then they go inside and they find he's not there. And so they're thinking, well, obviously someone took the body to, to, to get rid of it. Now, this is uh, strange for a number of reasons, the least of which is that in that culture, if you come into contact with a dead corpse, you become impure. You're no longer fit for worship. So if someone were going to do that, they'd have to have a very, very good reason for it. And not only that, but notice, we, we hear at the end of the story, that Peter notices that the grave clothes are lying on the ground. That means that the, the body has been undressed. And so they're assuming that someone had ripped the clothes off of Jesus and carried a dead corpse away in order to what? defile it even worse to make it so that this one who was humiliated on a cross is now humiliated even more not given a proper burial it's a horrifying idea and and if it, and if that's the case then then why 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 disrobe it it's perplexing it's strange and then later in the story, we, we hear that the apostles receive the, the story after they've uh, seen the angels and they've remembered uh, some of the words of Jesus. They, they come back and they tell the apostles. And the apostles call their report nonsense. That word leros, uh, actually in a lot of Greek literature, is sort of the, uh, the word that Ebenezer Scrooge uses when he says, humbug, nonsense. Uh, it, it's, it's used in, in a cynical and sarcastic way. The apostles assume that these are the ravings of mad women. And to hear that they're crazy must have confused the women even more. But Peter has hope, and so he goes to the tomb, and he sees that there are grave clothes lying on the ground. He's heard the report that perhaps the Lord is risen, and he's utterly bewildered. We get the, the text there, marveling to himself in, in New King James. I've, I've changed it to utterly bewildered. He's confused. He's perplexed. Now, in English, when you read marveling, it, it kind of maybe gets the sense that uh, maybe, maybe Pete um, believes uh, the woman's story, and so maybe he's starting to get excited. I want to push you away from that. I want to I suggest that Pete is just there, and he's just gobsmacked. He doesn't know what to make of anything. And there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, in, in this entire section, Luke goes out of his way to go against his normal reporting when he talks about things that are joyful or exciting or praiseworthy. And we have a couple of uh, examples of this. Uh, if you look in Luke 1, 57 to 58, uh, now Elizabeth, um, John the, the Baptist's mother, uh, her full time came for her to be delivered and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the, how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. This is the normal report for Luke when something wonderful has happened. Uh, later, um, when, when, when Jesus gives a blind man back his sight, we read in Luke 18, and immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. This happens again and again. Whenever something wonderful happens in Luke, the response is the same. Glory to God. Praise. Not here. Here is bewilderment, marveling, astonishment, perplexed. Compare. Look. Um, here in um, Acts 9. As uh, he, Saul, journeyed, he came near Damascus. Damascus. 
And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against these goads. So he, Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? You notice what, what's, what's happening here is when Luke uses the language of being perplexed, of being marveling, of, of, of being astonished, he pairs it with fear, with confusion. It's not happiness. Uh, earlier in, in Luke 8, uh, we have... And they came to him. This is uh, the story where uh, Jesus calms the seas and the disciples are in the boat. And they came to him and awoke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. We could go on. It's it's fascinating how Luke is so consistent in this language. Whenever you have the language of of marveling or of being astonished or being perplexed, it's always paired with fear. It's never paired with the, the reaction we ought to have when God has done great things. And this is even doubly strange when we think about the fact that the women who were perplexed meet angels. And the angels themselves say, Hey, remember Remember? And they, they quote uh, from, from Luke 9 where, where Jesus tells the disciples, says, look, you have to understand the Son of Man must suffer and be crucified and rise the third day. We're told that the women do remember. So surely they're going to shout for joy and praise God and glorify Him. No. Luke goes out of his way to avoid that. Instead, instead they go still perplexed, still confused, and they report. How can this be? This is the fundamental moment when the whole history of the world changes. When death goes to life and people are just flummoxed. They're scared. They're confused. I want to suggest to you that what's going on is not necessarily a lack of belief. I think that the the women, when they, they remember, they remember the Lord saying these things, and they're beginning to wonder, and the angels tell them, why do you seek the living among the dead? I think they begin to believe But I think there's a difference between believing and comprehending. The women may very well believe that Jesus is now raised from the dead, that something phenomenal has happened, something mind-boggling has taken place, the one they literally just watched die They watched him be buried, and they're believing it's possible. Maybe something magnificent has happened. Maybe something wonderful has, has taken place, but we don't know what that means. What are we supposed to make of this? I have to do it. I'm sorry. Has anyone here seen uh, The Matrix? 
No, no one's seen the Matrix. Oh, okay, Lee's seen the Matrix. All right, excellent. Oh, man, what a movie. It's taught in just about every uh, philosophy course now because it's got so many interesting ideas going on in it. But there's this, uh, the, the basic, let me give you the, the, the basic plot. Basically, there's this guy, he's a computer hacker, and he finds out that his whole life, he's been living inside of a machine. Someone's like plugged some stuff into his brain, and so everything that he sees has been fake. It's all been conjured up by evil robots or whatever. And, and one day he gets unplugged, and he starts to see the real world. And he believes, he's like, oh, okay, well, this is horrible, but at least now I know the truth. And then an interesting thing happens. There's this fascinating scene where he gets plugged back in to the Matrix. He's now back in this computer program. And he's asked by his, his master, his, uh, his kung fu leader, um, to, to fight. It's, you know, because it's an action film. We've got to entertain the kids these days. If you want philosophy, great, but you've got to have some gun battles. And so he's asked to do some ninja attacks, right? And it's this interesting scene where he begins to, like, you know, move forward and fight and jab. Um, he's learned uh, by magic all these cool karate moves. And uh, he finds that no matter what he does, his, his, his master, Morpheus, is faster than he is. He can move quicker and always dodge. And he's got cooler techniques. No matter how many cool techniques, Neo, that's his name, Neo, an anagram for it, the one. The, no matter how many cool attacks he makes, Morpheus is always quicker and always, uh, always has a, a better counterattack. And, and, and at a certain point, Neo's confused. He's, he's angry. And, he, and he's looking at him, he's like, this is impossible. How can you be so quick? How can you move like that? And Morpheus, in his very deep voice, says, Is that air you're breathing? And he goes, huffing and puffing. And he realizes, Wait, I'm just laying down with a plug in my head. I'm not hyperventilating. I can't be. I'm not actually doing anything. And then he thinks, whoa, 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 hold on. If that's the case, then these rules that I've grown up with all my life, that I can only run so fast, or punch so hard, or um, adapt so quickly, those are all fake. Those are just put there by somebody else. It's a computer program, and I can hack it. You see, before this moment, Neil believes that he's plugged into a computer program or whatever. But he doesn't understand what that means. He doesn't recognize, he doesn't realize that the rules no longer apply. That he's entered into a new age. Once he's started to recognize what the real truth is about his situation, he finds he can do things he never thought he could do before. The implications of the truth begin to filter out into every part of his being. And suddenly, he's faster than you can believe. He's he's so quick that we can't even watch We can't even see his moves because he doesn't need to obey the old rules. The old rules were a lie and he recognizes it. He gets it. He comprehends it. At a certain point, he asks his master Morpheus, he says, are you saying I can dodge bullets? And Morpheus looks at him and says, when you're ready, you won't have to. And the last scene of the movie, the bad guys are shooting all these bullets and Neo just looks at them and he says... These are just code. He stops them, and they drop to the ground. 
because he started to understand the world that he's in. After any great life-changing event, something analogous to Neo's experience happens. You believe that you're in a new age, but you can't comprehend it. You can't, you can't understand the implications. You have to start living into them. You have to start going through a, a, a new life pattern, rhythms and practices, in light of this new thing that you've understood. And when that happens, the whole world gets reconfigured. It's, it's probably, honestly, it's probably not that difficult in some ways for the women to believe that Jesus is, has come back from the dead. They've seen Jesus raise um, a girl. Uh, she was dead, and, and Jesus made her alive. She's, they've seen resuscitation of corpses. They can, they, can, they can get that. What they have a hard time understanding is if Jesus is, in fact, back, what does that mean for the world? What it means, friends is that the Son of Man has become the risen Lord. It's an interesting uh, thing in this text. Um, Luke, at the, at the very beginning of it, he, he has like a little, um, little editorial note. He says in verse 3, Then they went in, the women, into the tomb, and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. This is interesting because Jesus has never been called Lord Jesus in Luke before. In fact, he's not called this in any of the other Gospels, except for um, possibly in Mark, at the, interestingly, after the resurrection. Um, we're not sure the, the texts are, it's difficult to know what's original, but, but for all intents and purposes, nowhere else is Jesus called the Lord Jesus. He's called, you know, Son of Man. He's called uh, the Christ. He's got, but Lord Jesus, that's, that's new. That's strange. And what's even more interesting is that after this text, after this resurrection text, this empty tomb text, if you follow in Acts, as, with the, as the story goes forward, we find that Jesus gets called the Lord Jesus all the time. In fact, it, it almost becomes a proper name. Listen, in Acts 7, uh, Stephen is being stoned. Verse 59, And they stoned Stephen, and he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Peter in Acts 15, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Paul in Acts 21, Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? I'm not ready only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem. For the name of the Lord Jesus. Something dramatic has taken place. He's not just Messiah. He's not just the Son of Man. He is the Lord. He is Lord over sin and death. He is vindicated by God the Father as the beloved Son and the ruler of the world. He is raised to the highest authority in heaven and on earth. He is a promise and a sign of what our end shall be. He is put at the top of creation. Caesar is no longer Caesar. 
Kings are no longer kings. Masters are no longer masters. There is one Lord, the Lord Jesus. Women, Peter, apostles, welcome to the new age. This is difficult. It's difficult. It's difficult to go into a new age. So I'm... um, I remember uh, one of the things I found very quickly after having children is that sleep is no longer my own. That is totally subject to what they're doing and how they're feeling. Uh, so if I w- expect to get you know, a certain amount of sleep, well, you know, I can hope. But really, at the end of the day, it's really up to them. That's a new rule in this new age of fatherhood. It's a new way of going about things. I uh, remember once, um, I think it was Alice, was, was just crying and crying and crying. And so I kept trying to get her into that little swing machine, you know, that's a great machine. I think we gave it to Scott and Kim, because uh, we're not going to have any more kids. <laughs> right? Because uh, we can control that now. Strange. Uh, anyway, so they think, and then she keeps screaming, so I'd pick her up, and then she'd quiet down. And then she'd quiet, she'd fall asleep, like, okay. And what you have to do is you get started first, and then you kind of like... <laughs> just because just you want to keep the rhythm in, in play as best you can. That's a new rule. It's a new age. A new experience of life. Fatherhood. The rules are different now. And, and slowly, over time, you begin to acclimate to that, right? As you begin to, to realize, okay, I'm a, I'm a dad, so I guess i got to do all the dad things. Over, over time, those become sort of natural, sort of real to you. But it takes time. At the beginning, you think you know what you're doing, but you have no idea. It was interesting. Um, in 1978, uh, the philosopher uh, W.V.O. Quine uh, wrote a book called The Web of Belief. It's a, it's a fascinating text. Um, and I think it's particularly helpful as we think about what it must be like going for these women and for Peter and for the apostles, and really, yeah, for us, as we think about what it means to acclimate to this new age, acclimate to the life of the Lord Jesus Uh, We read, the plausibility, the believability of a proposition or a fact or a truth is influenced by wider commitments and foundational assumptions. The weight attached to specific assumptions, the sense of their authority or reality, it's a critical constraint on the interpretation placed upon a wide set of features, of self, of world, or others, extending to how the whole world is interpreted as variously disclosing the present An action of God. It's kind of wordy, and this is from a uh, neuroscientist, a Christian neuroscientist at King's College in in London. But what he's pointing out that that Quine has has shown us is that that everything that you believe, right, is sort of in a web. And when new information comes, it kind of enters into the web. And if you believe it, it sort of starts at the outside, and it sort of works its way into the web. And, And as it comes in, new connections are made, and new beliefs and new implications are recognized. Until at the very, hopefully, at the core, if it's a really important truth, it kind of gets its way right next to the center, the very core of what you believe to be true about the universe. And once it gets to that point, it has to reconfigure all of the other beliefs around it so that it becomes the center, it becomes the core. Well, if Jesus is Lord, that truth is going to have ripple effects through the web. You see, the women and Peter and the apostles and, yes, us, live in a different world than the one in which Jesus is Lord. 
In this world, power is accumulated through violence and deceit. Money is more important than friendship. And always having the hottest, newest gadget or the biggest, most expensive house and the best-looking, most desirable mate, that's the way things are in this world. Interestingly, in this world, maybe less so now, but certainly in the first century, women's words don't matter. Josephus tells us uh, that we don't trust women's words because of their giddiness and impetuosity. Great, Scott. Thank you. Thank you for laughing at that. That's really telling. Uh, in fact, in the, in the ancient Near East, uh, women are not even allowed to testify in court except as like a last resort, which is probably why the, um, the men uh, quickly disbelieve their tale. In this world that we live in, and the women and the apostles and, and Peter, in this world, when the dead die, the best you can do is honor them with spices. The best you can do is put their bones in an ossuary. Because in this world, the dead don't rise. In this world, you keep your head down. Because the people in charge, the lords, the people who win, are the people who use violence and money and influence to maintain what they have and to get more. And so, yeah, it is really, really hard to really, really believe in the Lord Jesus. And yet, and yet can't we say, can't we say that because Jesus is Lord, everything, literally everything about human life, all those things we just said, they're turned inside out. If Jesus is the Lord, if he's the one who rules now because of his resurrection, because of God's vindication of his life, then isn't his life the right kind of life? Isn't the life of mercy and the love of the outcast, hospitality, self-giving, and yes, even quiet, engaged suffering, isn't that the authoritative life that we are to live, the real life, the life that's shaped around the world as it actually is? If Jesus is Lord, that is life, that is living. The world's values, the cash, the houses, the sex, the drugs, the success, the influence, the fame, the status, the gossip, pounding, the shaming, these have been shown to be illusory and empty. They are the values and virtues of hell. Because Jesus came back, the tomb is empty, he is Lord, and when that becomes the center of our web, and that becomes the most fundamental point from which we interpret the world, then everything that the world tells us out there is exposed as a lie and becomes meaningless, and it is a call to a radical life change, a way of living that is completely out of step with what gets you things here. You see, all of us, the women, Peter, the apostles, and we who confess the resurrection of the Lord, we who know him to be king, even we still have a hard time remembering that it's not air that we're breathing. We 
We are still sinners and doubters. We still wear corrupted flesh. We are still surrounded on all sides by those who trust wholly in the old age. And we are still tempted by their values. And so what do we do? We don't have an answer in this text. It actually comes later in Luke, but we're not quite there yet. But listen to this. Uh, you know, 20 years or so after um, these things have happened, uh, the Apostle Paul has been uh, called by God to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. And he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And he's telling him, he's just been telling him these very things I've been saying, that Jesus is Lord, and that changes stuff. And he says, this is Ephesians 2, uh, starting in verse 19. He says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, listen to this, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Friends, if you want to grow like that, if you want to have this resurrection life, this this acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord, if you want that to become the center and, and the thing by which you interpret all that there is to interpret around you, if you want that, well then you have to be a part of this church where Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. And you have to be a part of this living body that becomes a building that's joined together, that grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The Spirit of God moves in this place to, to join us together and to grow us up into the kind of people who recognize the resurrection. And these things take time. Uh, for me, it's coming up on about 30 years. And uh, I, think, I think I've made some, some strides in some places, and I think that there are other places where um, I, I definitely need work. The point is, by being embedded here, where the Holy Spirit moves and being attentive to the word and truth of God, and being conformed to his image in the, in the sight of these people, I too am with you being grown up into a holy temple, a dwelling place of God in the spirit, where I can truly and completely say from the core of my being, Jesus, you are the risen Lord. If you're in the midst of perplexion, Neil joked about it. He, he thinks that's funny. The last sermon was called Pre-Prayer Yourself. It's like prepare, but I change it to pre-prayer. And so Neil thinks I'm on a, on a kick right now to like put words into it. It's not. It's, I'm not I, don't want to do it. I agonized over the title. I mean, it was just brutal. Uh, but this is what I came up with. If you're in the midst of perplexion, and you find yourself confused about how to live knowing that Jesus is Lord and yet also knowing that the world tells you that that's nonsense, then you have to do what fathers do. And that's get used to it. By the power of the Spirit and the practices and the life of the church, you too will know Jesus as Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we'll be people who are no longer reser-perplexed. That instead we will see with clear eyes the clear light of your glory. 
that we will know not an empty tomb, but a risen Lord Jesus. God, as we confess you as Lord, and as we gather as a people, send your spirit in power and in might to grow us up into the holy temple that you've called us to be, so that we'll be people who recognize what's right, what's true about your resurrection, and that that will interpret everything around us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.